Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you all had a wonderful week. This week's Whale of the Week is K-14 Leah. She was born in 1977, and she has three living offspring, Lobo, who's K-26, Yoda, K-36, and Kelp, K-42. She spent the last of Granny's living years with Granny's group, that's J-2, um, and she's always seen with her family, whether she's hanging out with JK or Pod. Before we get started with our episode, which I'm super excited about, this week we talked to um, a graduate student over at Moss Lady Marine Labs named Jack about his research and the different things that he's seen in the field. Um, but we're going to have a quick message from our sponsors, and then we'll get to talk to Jack. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Blackfin Coffee. Blackfin Coffee is an e-commerce roasting brand based in Seattle, Washington, and I want to tell you about them. I was really inspired by the brand's focus initially to partner with PNW Protectors to lock arms and help save the southern resident orcas in the Pacific Northwest. For more information, visit them at www.blackfin.coffee. That's blackfin.coffee. For our listeners, Blackfin will be offering 20% off your first purchase with the promo code BREACHEXTINCTION20 at checkout. Again, head over to blackfin.coffee and redeem your promo code today. So welcome to the Breaching Extinction podcast. This week I have Jack with me. Do you want to introduce yourself to everyone? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Erica. So yeah, my name is Jack Barkowski. Uh, I'm currently a graduate student at Moss Landing Marine Labs in the Vertebrate Ecology Lab. Um, I study under uh, Allison Stimpert, who is an expert in humpback whale acoustics. Um, but I also am in Gita McDonald's lab who studies uh, marine mammal physiology. My thesis work will look at humpback whale vocalizations in uh, the three West Coast marine sanctuaries. So the Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary, uh, Monterey Bay Marine Sanctuary, and the Channel Islands. Uh, our data covers, the data for my thesis will cover the period of COVID. Um, and so I'm trying to look at impacts to humpback whale vocalizations related to it's a, sort of a quieting period quieting. from COVID, but the data analysis is still in process. So we'll see where it ends up. Uh, in addition to my master's work, I work with SR3, which is Sea Life Rescue Rehabilitation and Research, uh, an organization based in Washington that does uh, research on marine mammals. I specifically work um, with researchers who focus on large whale entanglements and large whale population studies. studies. Uh, so we collect data related to uh, we collect data that goes to folks who do uh, entanglement scar studies, uh, po- population studies, and we also do entanglement responses. Uh, yeah. That's Me. pretty awesome. Um, tell us more about your thesis and like walk us through how you are conducting that study and why it's important that we have this information. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my thesis uh, data is being collected as part of the Sound project, which I work on uh, as an analyst for the West Coast region. Uh, so the Sang Sound project is a uh, wide scale project that's monitoring sound in underwater marine sanctuaries and one uh, national marine monument out in Hawaii. 
Uh, it's funded by the Navy and NOAA, and um, it's a really interesting, it's really, interesting. really important. It's never sort of been done on such a wide scale. Uh, acoustic monitoring of this nature has never been done on such a wide scale. So we're already seeing some really fascinating uh, spatial and temporal trends and all sorts of different uh, biological sounds and anthropogenic sounds. Um, we're not just looking at at what uh, animals are making noise out there. We're also looking at how anthropogenic activities are impacting the soundscapes of these different natural marine sanctuaries. Uh, with such a large scale project too, we have, there's three uh, sanctuaries on the East Coast that are being studied, Stellwagen Bank, Gray's Reef, and the Florida Keys, uh, okay. as well as one uh, national marine sanctuary in Hawaii and one national marine monument out in Hawaii. Uh, so like really interesting geographical coverage and really great coverage of a lot of different marine mammal and fish species. Um, so we're collecting data, we're collecting data. Uh, on some of these species that like their data sets are really incomplete for. So we're really expanding a lot of the information that we have about uh, different fish presence. Like in the Channel Islands, we're looking at Boccaccio rockfish and uh, um, plain fin midshipmen, which are really interesting fish that make some really cool uh, sounds, especially the plain fin midshipmen. Um, and these are sort of things that haven't been addressed on a wide scale before. And so it's been really awesome to get to work on this sort of project and to uh, meet so many established acoustic researchers who, who've done such interesting work and have a really uh, impressive like width or breadth of knowledge to sort of offer a graduate student like me. Uh, so it's been really great to work on this project, especially uh, considering that uh, the Navy and the NOAA are funding it, um, mainly sort of uh, understand how anthropogenic noise is impacting um, marine mammals. This, this project came about um, because of uh, uh, the use of Navy mid-frequency active sonar and uh, the lack of understanding of what those impacts might have on, on animals and, and the environment overall. My take on the Sank Sound project, um, it's been awesome it's been to get awesome to work on, on this project. This project. And, uh, it's really groundbreaking. You know, this hasn't been done on such a wide scale level before. Um, so the things that we're learning are uh, and the things that we're seeing, it's all sort of happening for the first time uh, because none of this has been done. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so for our listeners who maybe don't know what like the anthropogenic sounds are, what would be some examples of that? Absolutely. So uh, the main uh, the source main of anthropogenic sound is from shipping uh, and vessel activity. Um, large uh, commercial ships obviously uh, make really loud noises uh, that are in low frequency sort of sound ranges and they can propagate over really, really far distances. Uh, we also get a lot, depending on the location, uh, we get a lot of noise from smaller uh, ships too, which are mainly related to fishing or recreational boating activity. Uh, here in Monterey Bay, where there's pretty uh, strong uh, squid fishery activity, depending on where the squid are, the squid do move around. So some years we don't have as much fishing pressure in the bay, um, but we've already started to see sort of a correlation with uh, when different fisheries open up, you can see the uh, you can see the energy levels in different uh, frequency bands increase. increase. So that's indi indica indicative of uh, more activity, you know, more sound being produced in those frequency bands. And oftentimes it's related to ships. Something else that we study uh, in anthropogenic sound sources, explosions. And so um, in relation to those fisher fisheries and that fishing activity, a lot of fishermen will use uh, these things called seal bombs to keep California sea lions and other uh, species of uh, pinniped and otobi away from their nets and sort of out of their nets. And what they are is it's basically like a firecracker uh, that's uh, a special has a special substance on the wick so that it can explode underwater. And 
fishermen just light it, throw it over, it sinks down and explodes and creates a pretty loud uh, sound that propagates over great distances. And so we're sort of looking at the correlation between the use of seal bombs and uh, air pressure as well. So it's been pretty interesting to see that. There's many other sources of uh, anthropogenic sound though as well. Like there's uh, fish finders, sonars, uh, and some unknown sources as well, where we can tell uh, we can tell that the sound isn't a biological sound. It's not being produced by any animal or anything like that. Um, we just don't know the exact anthropogenic sound source. So, so part of this study has, study has like, been like new signatures and like, what is that? Uh, which is a question you ask commonly in like acoustic research though. Uh, it's, it's very collaborative. Oftentimes you need to go to other experts who have you know, studied sonar uh, exclusively throughout their career and they can tell you right away what kind of sonar it is where it's positioned on the ship and what the type of ship was and what they were probably using it for. Uh, so it's, it takes a lot <laughs> to really understand what you're seeing and these seeing and hearing too, because obviously we listen to most of this data. That's crazy. So what kind of impacts are these sounds going to have on our ocean animals? I know at least in the podcast, we've covered the impacts of sound on the Southern residents, but like, what does it look like for other species? Right. right. Um, primarily what I'm interested in studying is, uh, acoustic masking and that's the phenomenon where you know loud sounds or continuous loud noise and increased energy in a specific frequency band can make it really difficult for uh, marine mammal species to communicate and so with large whales that I study um, blue whales have you know a different uh, acoustic repertoire than fin whales and they have different acoustic repertoires from humpback whales so you can use the call types that you're seeing to understand species presence absence uh, and sort of temporal and spatial trends. That becomes really difficult though when uh, increased anthropogenic noise levels mask that sound in our, in our recordings. So with low frequency sound, for example, um, if there's high, 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 uh, high levels of energy coming from uh, ship noise, large container ships that are masking these low frequency levels, uh, one, it makes it really difficult for an, an analyst like me to actually understand if there's presence of blue whale vocalizations or fin whale vocalizations in that time period. And two, just for the animal's sake, uh, the animals sort of react to this as well. And the effects of, of ship noise and anthropogenic noise varies. So there's a thing called the Lombard effect where animals start calling louder in a noisier environment. And it happens in humans too. You know, if you're in a crowded room and everyone's having side conversations and you're trying to hear the person next to you, you tend to talk a bit louder than you normally would. Uh, and whales and, and dolphins do that as well, which I think is pretty interesting. Uh, and then on the other side of that too, that too uh, uh, the opposite effect yeah. has, been, has been noticed where uh, chronic exposure to these sort of low intensity sounds can actually cause whales to stop vocalizing altogether or um, uh, their vocalizing, they won't change their vocal the amplitude at which their vocalization is produced. And so that sound is just completely wiped out. And it might as well have been like they were, they never made it at all. So the impacts certainly vary, but in animals that rely on uh, acoustic communication for so many different important life history sort of um, components like feeding, communication, reproduction, uh, all of these impacts are sort of negative. You know, if you're calling a lot louder and a lot more, it requires a lot more energy. Uh, and, you know, there, there's a trade-off there. If you're using more energy for, for one thing, you have less energy, less energy feeding or reproducing. Uh, and then if you're not calling at all, obviously, you know, uh, know what, you can't find any other animals from your species to reproduce 
or to even understand where like great feeding grounds are. So there's a lot of uh, impacts and each one sort of has a different implication, but oftentimes, uh, pretty much all the time, the implications are negative for these animals. So that's part of what we're doing in the study as well. Study as well. Understand, is to better understand what sort of uh, impacts chronic exposure to these long-term sounds have. Um, some studies, especially down in Southern California, have looked at like uh, short-term short high-intensity sounds like explosions and the impacts those have to different species. But what's not as well understood is what sort of like long-term exposure to chronic, uh, or sorry, that is chronic, sorry, that is chronic, chronic. exposure to high-intensity or to medium to low intensity sound is. So essentially, if there's like a drone, a whine going on in the background all the time, how does that impact the animals? Um, be really interesting to sort of tease this apart. That is super interesting. Have you done any work with drones or studying the, like the impact of drones on animals? Uh, we have, I haven't, I should say, and the Science Sound Project um, isn't looking at anything specific like that. Uh, but it's something that I've found uh, really fascinating, uh, sort of on a personal level. So for with the entanglement work I do, um, SR3 doesn't use drones, but other entanglement teams in different locations around the world do use drones to, to assess the sort of uh, the nature of the entanglement and how the whale's entangled. And there's sort of, you know, there can be... Um, Sometimes the drones can impact the whales and cause them to, to, you know, have adverse behavior and start either pick up speed or become a little bit more agitated. And from an entanglement or a disentanglement perspective, you know, you, you want that whale to be as calm as possible, as subdued as possible so that there's uh, less danger to you as a responder and less danger to the animal itself. Um, so I think drone under, like as you know, drones get more sophisticated and this technology improves and stuff, it already has become pretty sophisticated. It's going to be really interesting to sort of understand those impacts. And I think some of the, like, uh, I believe it's uh, for marine mammal drone research. I think you have to stay 100 feet above the animal. I'm not sure if that uh, is, is, ubiquitous for all parts of the world, but I think that's the current American standard. I'm not 100% sure. I could be wrong on that, but I think it's interesting. I don't know how much it would affect their sort of vocal behavior, but I think it certainly impacts their uh, general behavior and, and what they're doing at the surface uh, and stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've like thought about drones because a lot of people use them and I'm like, I, I personally don't feel comfortable using one just because we don't know the effects. Like it could be minimal. It could not be like significant at all, but we still don't know. And it could be like, uh, you know, awful to them. So I feel like it's sometimes not worth it. Definitely. Um, I think you have to like understand too what the benefits of using a drone are if you're going to use it. Right. If so, a lot of what we do for population and entanglement studies when I'm on the water is um, photo ID, photo right? ID right? We're doing the dorsal fin, the tail stalk, and the fluke to understand what who the individual is and if they've ever been entangled in their life because entanglements leave distinct scarring that stays with the animal for its whole life. So we can assess uh, how many animals in a population have been entangled based on scar studies. So if the drone is going to provide us, you know, better images of this animal to understand scarring, and you know yeah. the impacts aren't negative, then I'm all for using it, right? But uh, if using this drone isn't going to provide us any additional benefits, like if we can get the same quality information just from our standard photo ID practices, I'm sort of in the same boat as you. Like, why use this unknown source that has potentially negative benefits or just or uh, potentially negative impacts, impacts that we don't really understand, and we can get the same quality data just from doing it are the old way. The only 
scenario or the only method I've heard of drones being used, which I think is really cool and innovative and sort of the only way you could do that is um, collecting like snot samples, I think they call it from the blows of animals. Yeah, they like hover right over the blow and they collect the sample or whatever. And I think that's really interesting and you can learn a lot of information on it, but that is exactly the case where you need to understand how a drone being so close to a whale at the surface impacts its behavior. Um, and maybe, you know, the impacts to the behavior uh, are minimal or, or, you know, they're, they're not enough that you need to, for that specific study that you need to consider uh, using an alternative method. But I think with every, you know, every researcher's objectives being slightly different and everyone working on different species and stuff like that, you really need to be clear about, you know, if I'm using this instrument, what are the benefits that using this instrument gives me over using another one? And what are the potential drawbacks? Like you said, we don't really know what the drawbacks are. So I sort of stay away from drones as well. It's also like really tough to launch and, and land a drone at sea and all sorts of complications come with that. So yeah, we don't use them, but I think they're really cool. And I think, and I think in the future, we'll get a lot of great data from it once they you know are used more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think so. I think it could be like, cause I mean, when we're looking at the surface behavior of a lot of like marine mammals, there's so much more that could be going on that we don't know. And like a drone could be helpful as long as we find the responsible way to do it. Um, so, you know, there's all these noise impacts in the ocean. Do you like, is the technology there to get rid of this? Like, could we make silent boats Would that like kind of solve the problem or close to like quiet boats or change maybe the frequency or stop using sonar? There's, There's uh, certainly been efforts to change the way uh, that boats are propelled through the water, right? Because that's the main source of sound. As that propeller is, is, is chopping and churning, you get sound from the cavitation of bubbles, which is like cavitation is, uh, you know, the creation of this air bubble as the uh, propeller whips through the water. And it's sort of creates, you know, that one bubble being created creates like a mini explosion, mini cracking sound. When you have thousands of bubbles being created by the spilling, spinning propellers, you get cavitation noise. And that's just one source of noise. Source of noise. Additionally, the vibrations that come from uh, that spinning propeller will actually propagate through the hull of the ship. And now the whole ship is sort of transmitting that sound out into the ocean. Um, so there has been work to, you know, sort of understand, well, like, can we make uh, how, how can we propel ships through the water without creating all this additional sound? And there have been some, some uh, really cool, really like, innovative cool. techniques, both in like changing the hull of the boat and how the boats powered electrically powered boats and other uh, sort of sources like that, that have showed slight decreases in the amount of noise that comes from ships, but not, uh, not significant. Um, it's certainly something that people are trying to understand better. I don't think... <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to get away from using sonar and echo sounders and things like that. Uh, not only are they used by recreational boaters all the time, just to sort of understand, you know, the contour of the ocean. And if I'm going to run into a rock or anything like that, uh, but also by, you know, uh, just government exploration of like resources and stuff, you know, we use um, uh, air gun blaster, it, you know, towed arrays of air guns, air guns. Sound really, really loud sounds. Uh, so powerful that, you know, this sound wave can actually penetrate into the sediments and provide you some understanding of what's down in the sediments, you know, people looking for, for fossil fuels and natural gas deposits in the ocean uh, use these sort of acoustic techniques to sense that. I don't think we're ever going to get away from it just because it's such a cheap uh, and effective way to do this, do this. Uh, but 
but the impacts to marine mammals on those on those sort of things are really incredible. There, uh, there was a study that looked at the impact. There was a toad air gun array, a seismic survey that was done um, near a bowhead whale breeding ground up, I think, uh, off of uh, off of northeastern Canada somewhere. I can't exactly remember where. Um, but you know, the study found that bowhead whales on their breeding ground stopped singing when this air gun, towed air gunner blaster was within uh, hearing distance uh, of these whales. And so clearly there are negative impacts to some of these strategies that we use. And so I think some of them will be amended as we go or maybe slightly improved, but I don't think we're ever gonna get away from using uh, acoustic methods to sort of map the ocean and understand what's what's, what's below us in the ocean. Right. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's a little tricky because there's certainly benefits and there's certainly negatives too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no perfect solution. I think that like, that's what a lot of people want when it comes to like solving issues, but like, it's not, it's not realistic um, ever. And everything's always highly nuanced and, you know, yeah, like there's, like you said, there's some benefits to doing it. Like, you know, if we fly the drone over the whale or if we're using the sonar to map the ocean floor, you know, for, a period of time, the information that we get from that could be way more beneficial, like, you know, for the cost of it. Um, that's definitely one of the things I like, you know, when people do push back to science, which I'm noticing when we talked a little bit about this before the podcast, like kind of a lack of science communication or a disconnect there is I feel like some people are like, oh, but the science is damaging for a short period of time. So why can't I go do a bunch of damaging things for a long period of time? And it's like, well, it's a little different. Absolutely. <laughs> And it becomes, it's science communication. I, I've, you know, more and more recently, I've realized that it's, that it's one of the most, of the most important branches of your science. You know, you can go out and do all this great field work, collect all this awesome or interesting data, analyze it, you know, write it up into some uh, report, you know, that gets published in a journal or something like that. Um, but the vast majority of the public will never read that paper from, you know, from the abstract all the way through to the conclusion. And, uh, and uh, if they do, there's the possibility, you know, there's the possibility for misinterpretation or just misunderstanding of the information uh, in that paper. So oftentimes, you know, face-to-face -face or presentations are the best way to sort of uh, get your scientific information out. Sometimes I even... I don't even really love like newspaper articles or, or journalists, you know, sort of journalists giving you the two cents of what a scientific paper says, because sometimes some things are slightly misconstrued or the main the main message um, that I, I received, you know, from uh, the main main takeaway that I got from reading a paper might be different than what uh, they're uh, emphasizing in a, in a, in a newspaper uh, article or something like that. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, you know. Um, but I think the most effective way to sort of effectively communicate your science is like in-person outreach. And uh, that becomes really difficult to do for a lot of busy scientists. You know, they just don't, unfortunately, they don't have the time. And so I think more and more people who are developing the skills of just science communication, who on the one hand understand the science and on the other hand understand how to communicate that effectively to people, are like really, really important in folding into fold different in research, research organizations and stuff like that. And certainly like groups like NOAA, you know, NOAA is really, really great at it. And they have a whole 
a whole department of people who are dedicated to just taking the reports that they get from scientists, like analysts, like me and the team that I work on. And they just, they, you know, they chop it up and they reshape it into something that's easily digestible by the general public. And I, when I see the finished product that they have, I'm blown away. I'm like, how did you do this? Uh, it's a really important and unique skill. And I think, you know, one of the biggest areas we need to focus in in order to communicate, uh, some of these ideas better. I, I see that especially with the uh, entanglement work I do, where I do a lot of outreach presentations to the general public, um, to uh, scientists, 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 and fishermen. Uh, and, you know, I see it on both sides of the coin where people are extremely uh, against sort of or people have extremely negative opinions, I guess, of like the large whale entanglement research and think that some of the, the numbers and the data involved in that are really skewed. And uh, to some degree, they're right. Um, you know, there's a great gap in information uh, about the extent of entanglements in different large whale populations. But on the other hand, um, you know, you get cries from the public that are like, uh, shut down all fishing and end all fishing efforts uh, to, to save these entangled whales. And that's not a realistic solution either. So it's like trying to find this middle ground and communicate to both sides of the coin. Of the that, coin. Uh, we're going to have to compromise and meet somewhere in the middle because one, that's the most realistic and best solution. And two, um, yeah, it's just uh, the, the message that I'm presenting in my presentation is not the message that you're sending back to me. And so I just want to be clear that I've, I've accurately conveyed, you know, SR3's uh, stance and take on entanglements and stuff like that. It's really difficult. It's really, really difficult. No, I think so. And I, like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had um, a researcher on here and I was talking about her study um, and like, um, we discussed it on the podcast. And then I was talking to somebody else that's like in the whale community about that same study. And she go, like, she said that she was like, oh, and like the whole point of the study was like something completely different. Like <laughs> from like when I had discussed the with the researcher and the researcher was like, no, it's like about like, you know, like it was the one about like the mixed emotions with orca conservation. And she was like, the study oh, is about oh. like, you know, people have like two main emotions that they respond with, like fear and trust or something like that. I'm trying to remember what it was. I'm probably saying the wrong thing. And then the person that I was talking to was like, oh yeah, no, the point of the study was that people don't understand their emotions. And I was like, mm. <laughs> yeah. so it's definitely like, it's hard to do. And like, I think part of it, we could start like with science communication at like the, in like kindergarten of like, how do we like communicate to other people like or how do we understand science because like so many people just don't understand reading a scientific paper and it takes a certain level of skill and even educated people who have been in the field for a while sometimes you'll read something and you still miss stuff you know totally and even like um you know no one knows everything right and so uh even you know I actually had a conversation with this about my advisor because I was just sort of feeling like overwhelmed and, uh, you know, like a little bit of imposter syndrome, even when I started this job, because there's so many, you know, like established, established institutions on this project uh, that I was a little intimidated. And I was like, how do you just, you know, how do you know all this? She was mm -hmm. like, I don't, she's like, you know, I read a paper and uh, she's, you know, she's checked, like she, she tells me how she goes through the references of this paper to, you know, to, to gain the information that the, this author had at the time. Cause you know, um, it becomes really difficult. Really right? difficult. Like, I'm writing a paper on humpback whale 
acoustics. And I've done all this background reading and researching to educate myself about humpback whale acoustics. Uh, obviously, all that information can't go into my paper that I'm writing now. And so it becomes really difficult. You know, scientists are forced to pick and choose what information you put into your paper and what background info you sort of give your audience. Um, and then that sort of and that sort of creates these areas of like, oh, well, I don't I don't really, I don't know this background information and uh, it's not presented to me here in this paper. So like, it must not be important enough for me to go look up. And I think that's where a lot of disconnect happens where it's like, no, that information is very important. It's just, there's not enough time and there's not enough space in this publication to include it all. Uh, and so then, I mean, so that's, then, a really that's a really big ask yeah. to ask the general public to put in all this time and effort to really understand a research paper. So you're right, I think like, Focusing on science communication from a younger age uh, would be really, really awesome and really crucial in just sort of improving our overall quality of science communication. I also think even, you know, training undergraduates and graduate students like myself and everyone is very clear about what your main points are. You know, if you have three main points or one main point or five that's fine, but just make sure that your audience knows what those main points are and uh, those aren't going to be misconstrued because I'm sure some of the other information will be. There's just too much information that, that uh, to be digested and there's too much background information that people need uh, in order for you to expect them to fully get everything that you're presenting in a paper. So I think having a couple main points and making them really clear is sort of the main way to improve our science communication. But, you know, I, what do I know? <laughs> No, I mean, I think that that's like valid because I think as like science people, we want to like every detail is important to us and it's maybe not so important to the public. And right, like right. there are certain things that are important for context, but it's like deciphering those things. So you're right. It totally is a skill and we need more people out there to do scientific communication. And I've been noticing like in the last six months, the more that I talk to scientists that there's a huge gap. And I feel like, I mean, everybody that I've talked to like from NOAA or that is like, you know, with some other research group, they're like, oh my gosh, like thanks so much for doing this because like, you know, the news and, and other people are like not necessarily trying to spread this information. So it's like the scientists want to talk and they want to share, but it like, I don't, scientists are so busy. I feel bad because I, it, it seems like, cause people are like, oh, the scientists need to be like doing this and that. And it's like, do you like, I don't know, there's so much time. It's definitely way more than a 40 hour a week job for any scientist. I promise you. Um, and they're definitely like one of the people that are probably like underpaid, overworked, like, et cetera. And they just don't have the time and energy to do like a lot of this stuff. And I feel like that's where we have to, you know, be able to like take the information and then be like, okay, you're telling me this about like, you know, sonar, let me go to like, you know, my congressman or my senators and talk to them, you know, because the scientists right. basically can't do everything. Like that's so much, you know? Absolutely. And it's such a large scale scale the impacts the of the impact. problem are large scale uh, and like the the solution you know is then wide scale too it's going to take uh, a lot of people uh, working on it from many different angles to sort of understand how uh, different sound sources are impacting marine mammals and what the next steps are to sort of improve that and what sort of goes hand in hand with that though know, are the, are the the skeptics or the people on the other side of the coin who maybe don't, uh, you know, want to see seismic air gun surveys uh, outlawed, you know, so to speak. Um, and so you get a lot of pushback, right? And it's uh, sort of the same thing with like uh, climate change deniers. Um, like, you know, we 
Yeah, there's a pretty strong consensus in the science community, the scientific community, that climate change and global warming are a thing. Yet there's still always this small fraction uh, of people who have different affiliations who will push back and negate that. And it's, it's critical in science to have people, you know, pushing back and, and challenging your your theories or your assertions or your findings. Um, but then on the other side of the coin, uh, there's this point in time when it just becomes like, like negative, negative and frustrating for, for scientists and for, you know, people in the general public, too, who uh, recognize a problem, want to start working towards a solution, but then become hindered by like uh, red tape, I'll call it, <laughs> you know, people who are just stu like stubborn, but for uh, a good, you know, sometimes financial uh, reason and stuff like that. And that, that frustrates me. Frustrates me. Absolutely. I like, I don't know. So I went to Eckerd college in St. Pete, Florida, and like, I was surrounded by, it's like, basically they specialize in marine science, environmental studies. I applied so to Eckerd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know all about it. So it like, uh, like it was an amazing school and I was surrounded by so many awesome people who like their hearts were really in it for the right reasons. Like they were motivated by the science, hard workers, like and then I got out into the real world and I like was just having this conversation last night. I think Isaac was there maybe for that part of it, or maybe it was just his other coworker, but anywho, um, like there are so many people that have other motivations. And for us in like the whale watching community, we see that like clout and likes and stupid yeah. things like that are like what get in the way of people respecting the animals. And um, like you're saying like financial incentives and things like that. And it's, it is frustrating because like these people do get in the way and it seems as though the people that are like that are louder about like doing yeah, yeah. whatever it is that they're motivated by than the people who are doing the right thing. Like I know tons of people who are in the whale watching community that feel that we shouldn't be watching the Southern residents, but they don't speak up because those other people are so much louder and it really does create a hindrance. And it's like big picture. What's the point, you know, right, like at the right. end of the day, what's the point? Like, you know, yeah, you can have all this money or you can have all these likes or whatever, but like, if the oceans are like, you know, like if all of our sea ice is sinking and our Southern residents are dead, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it go goes back to what I said earlier about like using drones and stuff and always being clear about what your objectives are, are and why you're doing things the way you are, you know, like you should always have a specific, specific reason for doing the things you're doing and then a goal that you're working towards too, right? I, I imagine for whale watching companies, it's something along the lines of like, you know, educating the general public and, and giving people who might not have an opportunity to see a large whale in person, like this, this life-changing experience. I remember the first whale watch I went on out of Boston and seeing this, the humpbacks and Stellwagen, like amazing. And it inspired me to do the stuff I'm doing today. Um, and so I, I totally get that. Um, but yeah, and then, yeah, the other side of the coin is, you know, responsible whale watching and uh, knowing when you're uh, what, knowing when what you're doing is actually having a negative impact on the whale and when it's best for everyone, if we either back off or go find another animal or, or whatever the situation is, obviously there's many different situations too, but I, it, I just think it's so important to always be very clear about what your goals and objectives are and then be upfront about that too. You know, if, if for any reason I find that I'm hesitant to share my motivations or objectives, then there's usually a problem with my motivations or objectives. You know, if I don't want to tell other people, then there's something sketchy about what's going on, I think. That's a definitely like a good rule of thumb. Yeah, people should be able to very clearly tell you what their objectives are. And like, 
if they, yeah, if they can't, it is sketchy because there probably is something going on. And there is so much more corruption in this field than I ever expected. Like, oh my yeah, God. I don't even know, like, it's, I, I think corruption is a, a good word for it, but I don't know if it's the best word because I feel like corruption implies that there's like a financial benefit. And for the most part, like, let's be real, not a lot of whale watching companies are making a ton of money. It's not the most lucrative spot. And so I do think it's more of like a, a clout and a social thing where it's like, uh, you know, these whales in Monterey Bay are like, I you know, I study them. I, I research them. I do all this stuff. Look at all my cool videos and pictures uh, kind of thing. And, um, you know, you're prioritizing yourself before the science of studying these animals. And yeah, I don't agree with that. Yeah. I, yeah, I totally feel you. And I see it. And I feel like I like bring this up all the time because like, I mean, for me, at least working in the whale watching industry, it's so prominent. And like, I know people don't like my views on whale watching because I don't think that we should be watching the Southern residents. And there's some people that do agree with me. I feel like most people do. It's mostly just the people who want to watch the Southern residents. But <laughs> like, um, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine about um, a conversation she had with a photographer and this photographer basically made this big long post and said that like, if they ever found out that they were doing anything to hurt the whales, that they would stop. Um, <laughs> and it turns out that they're not willing to stop. And a, a huge paper came out like in, January, then for me, that sparked going down a rabbit hole and seeing like, what do we really know about the impacts on the Southern residents? And there's 30 years of data that shows that it's like negatively impacting them right now because they're endangered. And so it's like, so what, why are you fighting so hard to be around them? Like they're literally could die. Like, is it worth it? You know, they are even, dying, even, not could die. They are dying. Yeah, right. Like like a steady population decline, like despite efforts to to help and understand what's impacting them. Like, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, and I think too, like you, if you're upfront about the reality of what you're doing, I don't think there's any way you can spin it to a positive when you're, mon when you're whale watching you're such an endangered population that especially like, you know, behaves the way they do acoustic communication for the southern residents is key like they're very social very vocal animals they're they chatter quite a bit you know and any if you have two or three boats constantly perusing around them it becomes a lot harder for them to talk to each other and to figure out you know what they're doing as a group or even to help them hunt like like yeah a lot of salmon salmonid species have very uh, sensitive um hearing ranges in the lower frequency uh sound like sound range especially like right under 500 kilohertz or so or sorry 500 hertz not 500 kilohertz um and so that like there's been suggestion that uh you know southern residents vocalizing in that 500 to 1500 hertz with their peak frequencies centered in that range is sort of intentional so that the the sensitive hearing ranges of salmon below 500 hertz uh, you know, they're not hearing these Southern residents as well. And they're not aware as aware that there's a predator about to eat them. Uh, but when you bring a bunch of ships around with constant low frequency drones, you know, I doubt that the salmon are going to stick around too much. Uh, but, you know, it's something that hasn't really been researched uh, that I'm aware of hasn't been researched uh, very much in terms of like salmon <laughs> prey response to boat activity and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just, I don't think there's any benefits to watching the Southern residents. Yeah, I agree with you. And we talked a little bit about like your work with SR3 and, um, you know, 
kind of some of the things that you've seen on there? Do you care to share a little bit about your experience with the Southern residents and kind of the interactions that you've had with people and the whales up there? Yeah, I, I will. Uh, my interactions are very, very few. Um, so when we are, I work with SR3 um, and the folks I work with as SR3, we're specifically focused on large whale entanglement and also, you know, large helping with large whale population studies. All of our data gets folded into the Cascadia Research Collective's uh, data collection along the West Coast. And we work um, primarily from Central California up to Washington and Puget Sound. Um, and when we're out, we're mainly focusing on, on large whales. There are uh, two other researchers associated with SR3 who do focus more on uh, killer whales. And they actually do use drones to photograph killer whales. Um, there was a photo that SR3 researchers took last year actually that, you know, showed the, it was able to, they were able to tell the pregnancy of a adult female Southern resident by comparing drone photos from a year, the year previously and the year current, they could see that, you know, the, by the shape of her body, she was very clearly pregnant. Uh, so you can get really great information from using drones. And, and that's a situation where you can get great information from using drones. Uh, and Holly and John do a great job of, of their, their drone use. They also use it for gray whale body condition assessment too. Um, that's another area I think drones will be really helpful when you can assess whole body condition of animals. Um, but so since we're primarily focused on the large whales up there, when we do see the Southern residents, we go the other way. You know, we, we very deliberately avoid them and stay far away. Um, even though on our research permit, we are allowed to approach them. We are allowed to take photos of them and do all that stuff. Uh, again, what's the point, you know, uh, evaluating what the benefits of doing that for the animal and for us as researchers, uh, there's none. <laughs> we already have a research, we already have researchers dedicated to collecting information uh, on these animals who are, you know, are, you know very well researched, well researched. Very well studied. I think every single individual in the population is documented, right? And all 77 of them are, are known. Yeah. Um, and so it's uh, like, what would the benefits be of us approaching the, what, those killer whales, uh, taking photos of them, and then passing those photos along to uh, you know, other researchers in SR3? Yes, it would add a, a sighting and a location of some individuals, but beyond that, we're not gonna add much more beneficial information. So we just keep, keep on going. <laughs> and we do uh, a lot of work up there in the summer months. And so we do see them uh, quite a bit. Last summer, we saw them on the uh, Canadian side of the Juan de Fuca Strait. Uh, quite frequently. Uh, also with COVID, we weren't allowed to cross the uh, Canadian-U.S. border, so we, we technically weren't even allowed to go approach them. But even if they were in U.S. waters, which they were a few times, uh, we avoid them. We avoid them completely because they're not our study animal, and there's no benefit to us approaching them, even though we're allowed to. And so, you know, uh, that's um, that's my, the, my boss and the captain of our ship. That's sort of his... Uh, his stance on the Southern resident killer whales. Killer whales. I will admit, at first, admit it. The first time I was on the boat and I saw the Southern residents in the distance, my gut reaction was like, whoa, that's so cool. Let's go see them. And then, uh, you know, we had talked beforehand and I remembered, oh yeah, we don't approach them. And I remembered all the reasons that we discussed about why we don't approach them. Uh, and it just, you know, it sort of, it became okay with me. Like once you start to understand it, um, or once you start to see it in person, in person like the negative effects negative of all these whale watching boats around the whales, uh, it becomes, I think, pretty easy to say like, okay, me approaching them is not going to help anyone. So we stand by, we stand, stand by and stand off, but we do see quite a few boats uh, around them when we do see them. Yeah. 
It's a tough one. I like remember I was motivated to go like I started doing whale watching in the San Juan Islands and I had come from doing a study on the impacts of ecotourism on bottlenose dolphin and I was like motivated to go up to the San Juan. So I was like, oh my God, they have all these regulations. They're doing it the right way, blah, blah, blah. And like, I felt like that for a long time. I was like, this is the, the best way to do it because it wasn't like what I was seeing in Florida where boats were literally just like driving over dolphins. Um, yeah. Like the, I don't know, the more time I spent there and the more people that I talked to, I was like, oh, like just because that we are regulated to some degree doesn't mean it's good. And also like, then I finally, like I listened to the industry because the industry told me like, we are actually helping the whales because we're showing other boaters how to behave. There's no science to back that. Um, and like, you could just as easily theorize that that's the reason why more boats are coming over to see the whales is because there's already tons of boats around them, you know? Absolutely. Um, but, when we're out on survey in Monterey Bay or something, I mean, we often see the whale watching boats like and uh, in a generally a concentrated area. And, you know, we know that there's some marine mammals in the area. Um, and I'm, I'm positive that other recreational boaters, you know, come to the same conclusions. It's only, it's only natural and it's only obvious. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tricky. Really I, think tricky. I think recreational boaters sort of, uh, I don't, it's tough to, to convey that, like, it's, it's really difficult to convey that just standing down and doing nothing is better for the animals than, you know, your brief encounter, uh, then the benefit, the benefits to the animal of you standing down are better, are, you know, all around better for everyone than just the benefit of you getting to have an encounter with these Southern, with these animals. I totally understand, you know, the majesty and the beauty of these animals. Uh, I went to SeaWorld in Florida when I was like six years old and I remember seeing the killer whales. That was the first time I was sort of inspired by this and that's a whole nother thing with the captive marine mammals. Um, and yeah, I mean it's amazing to me now like to think about how I was so inspired by seeing these captive killer whales and now I like well, I, my skin crawls to think about these whales stuck in a bathtub. Um, but anyway just uh, I, when we were up in Washington Last summer, we, uh, our office, we were in Olympia at the Cascadia Research Office in Olympia. Yeah. And I was just chatting with uh, a friend of mine who lives there, who lives right on um, uh, the Olymp uh, right on the Puget Sound there in Olympia. And he was telling me a story of how like six months um, previous, a group of six of the Southern residents came all the way down to Olympia, you know, really down into the bottom of the Puget Sound there. And he counted 16 boats, boats. Uh, around, around six, six whales, all of them recreational boats, um, you know, none of them idling. Uh, the whales were traveling at a decent clip and all of these boats just following them. And he said, you know, he, from his house, he can see the water. And so he was sitting there on the cliff looking out, watched all these boats come by, counted them. Two hours later, the whales come back by traveling north and there was like 19 boats following them or something like that. And I mean, in the Puget Sound, right, there's nowhere for those whales to hide. And I think that's exactly the scenario where one or two boats spots the killer whales and then all the recreational boats see an opportunity to have an encounter with southern resident killer whales. And it's really, it's, it's what you said earlier too, where it's like, they're doing it. Why can't I do it? Um, and I think that's part of what comes from like so when, we're, we're, when we do entanglement, we, do entanglement. we also do biopsy collection. Well, the, uh, for any of your listeners who don't know, you know, our method of biopsy collection, we use a hollow tip uh, crossbow dart and we fire a crossbow uh, into a specific 
you know, we, we uh, saddle up next to the whale as it's surfacing and on its um, terminal dive when most of its body's out of the water, the, water. the thickest section of blubber right at the, you know, right about where the dorsal fin is. Uh, we, we take, we fire a shot with a hollow tip crossbow and take a blubber sample from that whale. Uh, if you don't understand what we're doing and if you don't understand, you know, the blubber thickness and sort of things like that, it can look really bad. You know, it looks like we're shooting an arrow into a whale. Um, and so we're very aware of yeah, like what we're doing as a research boat when we're out there so that we don't sort of, or we try to avoid giving off, uh, you know, giving off the vibe that it's okay to do what we're doing just because we're out here doing it. Uh, you know, we apply for all the proper permits and, and uh, update those permits when we have to and sort of, you know, feed all of our all of our data and information into the proper systems and stuff like that. And uh, it's a lot, it's a lot to maintain and upkeep. And I think it becomes yeah. really easy for folks to see, to, to, to just see the portion of us out on the water around whales and think like, oh, that's, I want to do that. I want to approach this whale. Um, but there's you know, so much more that goes into it and so much, so much permission that you have to get uh, just before you can even approach a whale. Absolutely. It's difficult. It is difficult. And like, I think that's why as like the whale watching community, we need to like be like, hey, we're not going to watch Southern residents because they need space right now. And like, yeah, it makes us sad or whatever, but it's like more sad to like impact them in the ways that we do. But I don't know. Yeah. I like, it's frustrating because I feel like the public seems to be more accepting of that than the whale watching community or than like whale people themselves. Like, I feel like I get more pushback when I try to talk to people in the community than when, like, when I tell like the, um, like I'll have people come on and they'll talk to me about the Southern residents and I'll like tell them about what's going on. And I like had some woman tell me, I was like, yeah, like they're like, they just put more regulations on them. And she's like, yeah, we really shouldn't even be looking at them at all. Like there are some things that are just more important. And like, it seems like most people are of that belief. And then when Soundwatch has gone out and done their research, like once people know the impact, they're willing to stop. So like, I think it's like, I don't know, I think it's an issue within our community. And then also we set up these expectations of like, I deserve to get this close to a whale. I should be able to do this. Like, and no, like. I think too, like, there, there becomes a sort of like personal connection with the animals as well, which is, uh, I think like really hard to recognize and kind of like step them, like, away from too. Like I saw it on the East coast um, with like the Gulf of Maine humpbacks, uh, you know, it's not a critically endangered population or anything like that. Um, they do have uh, a high rate of entanglement and stuff like that, but there's, it's still a population of about a thousand humpback whales, uh, but they're very, very well documented. Uh, the Center for Coastal Studies has been studying that population for a long time. They have great coverage of all the individuals in the population. And like, it becomes easy to just be like, oh yeah, that's Twister. Like, you know, the whale that we see every, like to, you know, to sort of, you, once you know the animals as individuals, it becomes, I think, really hard to stop working with those, those animals. And I'm sure a lot of the naturalists in Let's Puget Sound and folks on whales know those whales as individuals. You know, when they see a killer whale dorsal fin, they know that it's J23 or, or whatever it is, you know, um, and can, I think it becomes really hard once you sort of have developed that like connection to a specific population of animals. Uh, that's not to say that I don't think it still needs to be done. I, I do still think we need to back off these whales a bit, um, but I can understand how it's maybe more difficult for whale watchers who have spent a lot of time watching these animals to now be like, I'm stepping away. Also, when 
you know, you get instances like that in Olympia where there's like 15, 16, 19 recreational boats around a group of uh, Southern residents. Like, yeah, I can understand whale watchers <laughs> being maybe upset that, um, that um, they're being asked to stop watching these whales too. I think yeah. also with the Puget Sounds, you know, um, with the, the impacts of whaling to the humpback whale and gray whale population in the North Pacific, uh, until like relatively recently, humpback whales and gray whales in the Puget Sound were not very common at all. So in terms of marine mammals that you were going out to see on, on uh, whale watching boats, it was the Southern residents. Like that's what people came to see. That's what you were, that's what your best chance. If you were seeing a large uh, marine mammal, it was probably going to be a Southern resident. The humpbacks and grays were, were rarer. Now that humpbacks and grays are much, you know, more common in the sound uh, and are present quite a bit, I think, you know, what a great opportunity to sort of transition to other large whale species that do some really cool things. There's a group of gray whales that go up near Everett, like in the mudflats near Everett, Washington, and uh, they burrow in to the, to the mudflats up there um, in such a manner that like at low tide, when low tide drops, you can see where the gray whales had been feeding in this specific area. Uh, you can even look at Google maps at these specific uh, like location. The last time I had looked at Google map, was taken at the whatever the satellite scan was taken at low tide you could see the divots of these gray whales feeding you know right outside there and i think something like that would be really cool to show people you know in puget sound and forget about the southern residents go look at the grays and the humpbacks and like they're equally as cool too you know um yeah, yeah. And, and most people, I think, like anybody that's never seen a whale, like when I, the first whale that I ever saw was in the San Juans and it was Stanley, um, the transient whale, but like, I, like we were pretty far away from him and like, it didn't matter. We could be another 500 meters away from him and I still would have cried and still would have been as excited as I was to see a killer whale for the first time in the wild. Like, right. It's, it's magical. And I think like, you know, being so privileged to be on boats all the time and be like, you know, close yeah. to these animals. Sometimes the animals do want to come say hi to us. And that's awesome when that happens. But like, yeah, I think we just like have to be more mindful of ourselves and our emotions too. Cause like you, as you did say, people probably have that emotional component of like, you know, knowing the whales and things like that. But um, I mean, the conversation that I had with Kelly from Oregon state and she published that paper about like mixed emotions of um, orca conservation, I, it really just like highlights how much we need to like bring the social science element into things and then like have people be self-aware because I think there are some people who are not like self-aware and like are willing to come up with all the excuses in the book for why they should be able to like make, do like destructive things, you know? Yeah. No, I totally agree. Um, <laughs> I, I think people give themselves too much leeway. Yeah, leeway. Um, especially around like marine mammals and something you said too, like kind of struck a chord and in, in a, in a thought in me is like, um, you know, this is a privilege to, to be able to be on the water so much, whether you, you know, I'm doing research and I'm on the water, you're on a whale washing boat uh, on the water all the time. Like the, the opportunity to be on the ocean so much and to see these like, really incredible really animals incredible. is a privilege. Um, you know, it's, it's not a right. It's not uh, a guarantee. You don't get to, you know, because this is your job, you don't get to say what is uh, appropriate. You know what I mean? Like these um, standards and guidelines that are in effect are in effect for a really good reason. Uh, and, and standards and guidelines, and guidelines that are being 
reevaluated constantly are being reevaluated for good reason. And so if there was any sort of like management decision to come down in terms of uh, approaching Southern residents, even for whale watchers, you know, like that's not going to be done so lightly. So I don't know. I think it's really difficult to sort of separate out the, the person, the, the, the human the element human that comes into like respecting the animals and stuff, because it, it becomes really difficult. Like you said, these are majestic, like, uh, you know, they, they oftentimes like evoke a very emotional response in people. Um, and so it's just difficult to, yes. to, to go against that, you know, uh, okay. I mean, I'm, I had a very emotional response too. I, I get it, but like, but like, yeah, what's best for what's the wind constantly has to be the, the number one question. Yeah, absolutely. So the one question I always ask people is what can we learn from the Southern residents? Well, what can we learn from the whales that you study? Hmm. That's a great, That's a great one. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to pick one thing. Um, I think in terms of, uh, you know, my work and, my what, work I'm and what I'm interested in is direct anthropogenic impacts to large whales and better understanding them because there's just there's a gap. There's a big gap in understanding what the impacts of different anthropogenic activities are to large whales. And, you know, one of the anthropogenic activities I study is entanglements and entanglements in fishing gear. Um, and we still don't know, you know, we're, we're trying to understand what the rate of entanglements is in different populations, what the sources of entanglements are in different populations, uh, what the associated um, mortality rate is for whales that become entangled and how different species are impacted in different ways based on habitat use and things like this. Um, you know, a very multi-layered complex problem that uh, has really like really wide, reaching wide reaching implications both for fishermen and for researchers and for the general public. Um, and then on, you know, the other bit of work I do to with the acoustics and, and measuring anthropogenic noise activities and how those impact uh, whales, you know, I'm really interested to see uh, humpback whale song, which is what I'm studying for my thesis, is really prevalent in the U.S. West Coast in the fall uh, as humpbacks are gearing humpbacks up are to gearing start their migration south. You know, they start singing. They're singing quite a bit. And so I'm really interested to see how just this opportunistic period from COVID impacted uh, those large whales. And so I think, you know, the main thing that I'm interested in and uh, in trying to learn from my work is like, what are the human what, what, how do anthropogenic activities impact large whales? And that's very, very broad. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the stuff I do is just two sort of pointed examples of ways to study anthrop anthropogenic impacts to, to large whales. But I think this is sort of along the lines of what we've been talking about this whole time is like uh, assessing and understanding what the impacts of your behaviors are uh, on the environment. And specifically in this case, you know, marine mammals, um, and it doesn't, when I say your impact, it doesn't have to be you specifically, but like all of the things, you know, you do or that you're a part of, you know, if you're buying a ticket on a whale watching boat, uh, that is specifically dedicated to going out and finding the Southern resident killer whales, you know, like if we see a humpback whale, we're going to drive right past it. We're going for Southern resident killer whales, then, you know, understand what you're contributing to and understand how, you know, you might be might facilitating be like negative behavior and stuff like that. So I would say understand uh, the impacts of your the behavior, your behaviors to large whales, and then also start to look at on a broader scale what the human impacts are to large whales, because there's a ton. <laughs> there's so many. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I think we all have to be mindful and just like, understand that we are going to have an impact no matter what. And I think a lot of people judge themselves or their identity is so rooted in being an environmentalist that they're like, oh my God, I could never impact the animals negatively. I impact marine life negatively on a daily basis, like by turning my lights on and driving my car and like all these other things. But like, yeah, like there are certain things that like we can have more control over and we should, I think you're totally right. And just like be mindful of like, okay, like, I mean, me driving my car around is not as direct as like, I'm going to go watch the Southern residents from boat, but like, yeah, we just have to be mindful. And then like, maybe don't judge yourself so hard if you're doing something wrong, because I feel like it makes it easier to do something right. Yeah. I was just going to say exactly right. That just sparked my, yeah, I thought the same thing that, you know, don't be so afraid to do something wrong, especially because I often find that when I do something wrong, I'm super motivated to correct it and to learn from it, to improve, you know, I think generally that's sort of the human reaction you know there's a bit of embarrassment i think associated with being wrong and i think that's why people are afraid to you know voice their opinion or to maybe try something new because they're scared of being wrong uh i wouldn't have have these cool jobs today if i wasn't scared of being wrong i've been wrong so many times in my life but every time i'm wrong like it's just another opportunity to learn and to understand how to be better in the future and you know i think of like those whale watching companies you mentioned where you're sure that like folks agree with you in terms of watching the Southern residents, but you know, there's hesitation to maybe voice that opinion because of all sorts of numbers of reasons that probably stem from, you know, the feedback, the opinion of others uh, on your opinion yourself. And I find you can't be too worried about that. Uh, If you voice that opinion and it's wrong for good reasons, those reasons will be made clear to you, you know, and then it's a great opportunity to learn. But if you voice that opinion uh, and the pushback is, for the wrong reasons, then, then you're right. And you know, you'll, that, that will become clear as well. So I think it's just really important to, to not worry about being wrong and stuff like that. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And like being forgiving, if people are wrong, like being forgiving towards yourself and then towards others, because like things do happen and like, yeah, like I definitely have gotten pushback from voicing my opinions and I see why people don't want to voice them because like literally like I like I've been bullied and slandered on the internet like by definition I'm not like saying that I'm like a victim of any of these things but like by definition like that's what's going on and like I like if I worried about like what these people said or the way that they talked to me or like things like that and like of course I'm a human it's going to get to me a little bit but like I'm like no I I really need to focus on like I I'm going to write my senators today about getting the dams removed or like other things like that, because it's just like, like, yes, it is annoying, but at the end of the day, like it's worth it. I think to just like stick with the truth as hard as it is. Um, And like, I don't know, more people need to stand with the truth. And I know there's so many people that won't voice their opinions because of that. And like, it's hard, but like, like, you know, those people want us to be quiet. Right. Right. Can I, uh, how old are you? I'm just curious. I'm 26. I'm 25. Okay. So I, I figured you were around my age. And I also think that sort of plays into it as well, where, you know, you and I have been doing this for a few years. Um, and there's folks in this field who've been doing this for a few decades too. And I think it can become difficult to push back against, you know, maybe someone who's had a whale watching company in the Pacific in Northwest Pacific for 20, years, 20 or years or something. You know, I, I can understand how people might be hesitant to try to you know not tell them how to do their job but offer suggestions (laughs) like avoiding the southern residents Uh, i can totally see how that would be intimidating to bring up or have a conversation 
but it, you know, again, just don't be afraid of being wrong. Uh, speak, like you said, you know, stand with the truth, be confident in that truth, in that and truth. And just, just understand that. Yeah. You're probably going to take some flack from someone. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong, you know, and I'm unsurprised to hear that you've been bullied and slandered because the Southern residents are such a touchy subject. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's, yeah, it's really, it's really delicate uh, in the general public. And so, I mean, I admire you for, for doing this sort of work. Um, I love killer whales. You know, I think they're so cool. Like I said, you know, killer whale at SeaWorld inspired me or, or set, set the wheels in motion for me to like have a curiosity in the ocean and the animals in it. Um, but as I spent more time reading and, you know, got research jobs and stuff and like just the story of the Southern residents is really sad. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit before the podcast as well. Um, you know, it's uh, it can be draining to do this sort of work and to deal with the sort of pushback and uh, yeah, the other stuff that comes with it on almost a daily basis, like uh, and it was something that kind of, you know, I, I don't want that in my life. Um, I've sort of fallen into that. And so that's whatever, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, in a, in a field where a lot of people are really interested in killer whales and working with killer whales, you know, I, I I'm sure you know that I was like, I don't want to work with the Southern residents, man. That's a sad, a sad, sort of story but it's such crucial and important work you know it's the same case with the north atlantic right whales on the east coast and their entanglement and ship strike rates and you know 380 or so whales left and they'll likely be extinct uh you know in a few decades as well but uh, it's it's not as it's not something that i want to work with and i just have absolute admiration and respect for the people that see that problem and say i'm going to do something about it uh it's it's amazing it's really important it's really important well, thank you. I appreciate that. And it is hard. And there are definitely days that I want to quit, but I'm like, I don't know, like, I just have to keep sticking with it because like, I, I don't know, at this point, I can't not do something about it. Like I've seen too much. I know too much, like, right, right. but it does get exhausting for sure. And like, I've had to like walk away and it's like, it's emotionally exhausting to see like people who are supposed to care about whales, not caring about whales, people not doing the right things, like people in the field getting in your way. But yeah, I appreciate it. And I appreciate the work that you're doing too. And there's so much like, I don't know, there's so many more layers to this than I ever expected, like of being working in conservation or working in science communication or whatever, um, of just like people and <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, nobody wants it. Nobody wants to be like slandered and, and have like, have to explain every single thing that they do. But that's just, I guess it just comes with the territory and it's worth it in the long run, probably. <laughs> Yeah, it does. And I like, yeah, I completely agree with everything you just said. And I especially like uh, the, the multi-layeredness and the complexity of, of these issues. And, and like you said, even from the research, you know, there's, there's complexities associated with just doing the research and a whole different bunch of complexities associated with communicating that research and everything in between has layers and, and uh, caveats and stuff like that. And um yeah, it's just, it's a lot of work. Uh, and so I don't know, I don't know that people always appreciate the amount of physical and emotional work it takes to sort of do a job like that and to, to really focus in on the Southern residents specifically. Specifically, um, um, Yeah. yeah. It, can be, it, can be tough. it can be tough. 
Well, do you have any final thoughts for people? I kind of feel like we should be inspired by your humpbacks who like to sing a lot and we should just kind of like sing our truth, I guess. In a way. <laughs> I agree. You absolutely should sing your truth. Don't be afraid to, to speak up and, uh, you know, talk about, talk about what you, talk about what you believe in. The other side, the of, other that side too, of that, too. don't be afraid to ask questions too. If you don't know something, ask, mm -hmm. right? If, ask someone who does know. Or if you don't know something and you're curious about it, get on the internet because now we have all these amazing resources where you can go find all these scientific papers uh, and, and you know read about the research that supports the different like the decisions that are being made. If you want to know why regulation exists, go and look it up, and there'll be a, a there'll be a, a wealth of information that explains why we require boats to stay 100 meters or 300 meters away from whales, depending on the species in the boat and things like that. Um, yeah, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to be wrong. And I'll also say like, I'm, uh, as, as you can probably tell, I don't mind chatting about this stuff. So I don't know if you like, will want to post my contact info as well. I'll give you my email yeah. and post that. And if anyone wants to talk about anything, you know, that I've spoken about, or just, you know, ask questions, I'm always happy to chat with people. It's like, I just said too, like, I always learn stuff, you know, from interacting with people. Like I've just chatting with you here. It's been a great, a resource, great resource for me. me. One, it clarifies One, what I actually know, right? It forces me to talk about my work and my stuff and realize yeah. the gaps in my own knowledge. And then I get to talk to someone who has a whole different expertise and wealth of information and I get to learn things from you. So I think, so I think I, I'm, I'm always happy to chat with people and outreach and collaboration and all that good stuff. So anything I said interests you or if you work on similar issues and something I said was wrong, uh, then definitely, uh, then definitely. correct me. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just, I'm always happy to chat. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Totally. Thanks everybody for joining us. As always, if you have questions, feel free to reach out. I've put Jack's email address in the description of this episode. So if you guys have any questions for him, also feel free to reach out. Uh, definitely check out our social media pages and keep writing your senators about the dam removal so hopefully we can get that done as well um but as always have a great week if you guys want to check out our patreon or leave us a review that would be greatly appreciated okay bye bye